And there was also a lot of boobs in this movie. A lot of boobs. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the barely awake radioactive ape from Canada, the Peter. Good morning, John. Okay, fine. Whatever. I'm not even going to play your games. And Cecil won't be with us. He's at a, was it a wedding? I think or it's a wedding. Or a bachelor party or something this week? I think he has like two friends that are having weddings, and this weekend is like the second friend that's having the wedding or something unreliable people. Anyway, if you guys want to help out the show, we have a Patreon. You can go and look for the Radiodrome or 1201 Beyond Patreon, which I highly recommend because, well, we need the money. And you can also go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E. You will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. There's a new movie out called High on the Hog. It's a Sid Haig, Robert Zadar movie. Joe Estevez is in it. Ellie Church is in it. You can get it on VOD and stuff. Well, the editor and the writer-producer are going to stop by later. I made Peter watch this movie last night. Before we get into the movie itself, would you say this is a grindhouse-style, hot film, action film, police drama? Would that be about accurate? I think it was meant to be a grindhouse style film and I'll, I'll get into my nitpicks about it later, but you can definitely tell it's, it's meant to be sort of, you know, that sort of drive in, drive in style seventies exploitation kind of thing, you know, weed pot movie, corrupt politicians. You got cops, you got pot farmers, lots of, lots of groovy colors. I'll give it that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think on paper it was meant to be that sort of thing. Well, as you'll hear in the interview, this didn't turn out, the, the the first cut didn't turn out at all, so they had to go back, do reshoots and re-edits to get the version that I made you watch last night. Now, mm-hmm. you were not the biggest fan of this. I really enjoyed this movie, but maybe because I actually know some of the people behind it, maybe I'm too close to it. But you did not really enjoy the movie last night, correct? I didn't like the editing. That was my my biggest gripe with the film is I didn't feel like the editing was consistent with what it was supposed to be, which was like a 70s exploitation film, which from my experience from watching those kind of movies, and even right after I watched the film, I was like, I'm going to watch a real 70s movie. I decided to watch uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And just noticing the, the difference, the stark difference between an actual 70s movie or even like a movie that's trying to be like a 70s movie, like, say, The Devil's Rejects, which nails it to me. It's a spot on adaptation of that sort of thing. It's a lot. Those, those types of movies are a lot slower paced. They're a lot more soft focus looking. There's not a whole lot of like neon kind of stuff. Like there's definitely some 80s influence in there, a little bit of EC comic style stuff. And I'm not going to fault the, the cinematography in the film. Actually, a lot of the shots looked really cool, very lush. Ellie Church in the radio station, that looked amazing. And looked as really you'll cool. even hear me point out to Ben Lewandowski, not realistic at all, but it looked great. 
It looks cool. It, it reminded me of the radio host uh, a little bit from the Warriors. Which is exactly what they were going for. Yeah, that's, that. that's what I figured. That's what I figured they were doing. I, like I said, I liked some of it visually, but I, it didn't feel 70s to me. It felt 2000s music video. Actually, a lot of it reminded me of the, was it Tony Scott that directed Domino? Yeah. Yeah, that was Tony Scott. A lot of the movie reminded me of that. Just the, ridiculous amount of jump cuts like this this movie was so cut heavy it kept cutting back to like having that scratchy grain and the the you know the real missing scene missing all this stuff over and over and over again it's like you do that a few times it's fine but i felt like it did it for the whole duration of the hour and a half and i ah, it was really starting to piss me off i guess i i'll admit and i i do say this to Ben, the editor, in the interview. I thought the editing, it, it did get a little erratic. It was a in little general, much. In general, I really liked the movie, though. I thought the tone of the movie, yes, okay, the editing didn't feel 70s. The tone did. This felt like, okay, first, it Sid, felt very... Sid Haig is pitch perfect. No, Sid Egg is always great. He's constantly charming no matter what role he plays. I really, I honestly really enjoyed Joe Estevez. It was nice to see Joe what, Estevez was so over the top. He, he was, was so great. much fun. He was clearly having fun. Him and that like other cop, like his partner was just awful. So it was just the contrast of a guy having fun and like knowing what kind of movie it is. And then the chick playing his partner, I think was taking it a little too seriously. And she had like porn level bad acting like just just really bad to be fair and yes this is Probably a spoiler a she does get though. killed halfway through the movie though yeah yeah she does but feels like she's in it for longer than she is um i mean i'm not going to nitpick actors too much in this but i mean joe estevez was really really fun it was cool to see robert zadar even though he was clearly not in the best of health this was this his, was last, his movie, last role yeah. last film yes as i said sid Haig, always fun and as i as i said also the some of the aesthetics like the visual aesthetics were nice to look at but I couldn't get behind a lot of the writing. It, to me, it felt very early 2000s grindhouse exploitation type horror. It, it felt very Eli Roth. I felt like a lot of the characters were douchey for the sake of being douchey. And uh, again, the, the editing, I, I couldn't get past. Like I couldn't, for me, like one of the biggest points of being able to sit down and enjoy a movie is being able to sit down and enjoy it for a lot of it is it's editing. If a movie is well paced, even if it's crap, even if the, the script is garbage, even if the acting isn't great, you can always appreciate a well edited movie that feels like it flies by. And this one to me did not feel like it flew by because I kept, you kept getting bombarded just massive amounts of cuts and constantly switching to, uh, you know, that film, film grainy kind of stock and then switching back to the more digital look of the film. I really wish it would have kept to, to one style, to one aesthetic. Cause like I said, seventies movies are not like that. They couldn't afford to make that many cuts in the seventies. These movies were cheap. They were shot on film. They couldn't go cut, 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 cut and do all this like quick cut looking stuff, which makes it look more like, like a Marilyn Manson music video. I really wanted to like this movie. I, I love the talent behind Behind it, I loved the way it looked. I just was not able to to sit down and enjoy it because didn't enjoy most of the characters except for the nostalgic value of really loving Sid Haig, Joe Estevez, and Robert Zadar, and I really liked some of the visuals. But as a movie, I wish I could have liked it, but I did not. And see, I'm the opposite. I Now, again, I'm going to put my bias out there. I know and I'm friends with some of the people behind this. So you have to keep in mind, that doesn't mean I'm not going to complain about things. One thing that Ben Lewandowski, the editor, who he's known me for a while, has said, he knows I'm not going to pull any punches. 
I'm going to tell him what I don't like. When when he was on, when we talked about Skeletons in the Closet, I was very open with my problems with that movie. I still that enjoyed movie, it overall. I, I liked that one a lot more. I'm actually thinking of revisiting that one because I really enjoyed that one. I mean, I'm a big fan of horror anthologies and stuff. I'm always trying to find different ones. I actually just watched one recently where Gunnar Hansen is sort of the host of it. It's like Campfire Terror or something. It's from Campfire the early 90s. Campfire Tales, I think. Campfire Tales, like yeah. I, I really like discovering those, whether they're new ones or from like the early 90s or the 70s. I really like those anthology movies, and I really feel like that one captured that sort of aesthetic perfectly, except for like that one junkyard story wasn't the greatest. Which which is the one that, if you remember from my interview, is the one I gave Ben the most crap over. Yeah, I mean, I thought the story in that one was cool, but just like the it, it visually, it didn't pull me in. Like it, it felt way too again, much like this movie, more like an early 2000s music video with all the the quick cuts and the very digital looking footage for the most part. But overall, I really liked that movie, so I was quite looking forward to watching uh, High on the Hog because I was sort of expecting more of the more of the same, I guess, you know, expecting them to capture expecting them to capture that 70s aesthetic the same way that they captured the 80s aesthetic with the anthology film that they did. And unfortunately, I didn't like it as, as much as I wanted to. But that's that's just the way it is. You're, you're not going to you're not going to love everything. But I mean, I still very much respect him as a filmmaker and as a director. And I think he has a solid vision for what he wants to do. And and hey, you know, it's it's at least I liked one out of the two. I, I really liked the anthology film and I'm, I'm going to be watching that one again at least it's like one for one didn't like one did like one so that's that's a positive at least well see to me high on the hog and you got to remember my bias here against pot films you know i'm not a pothead i don't do drugs i've never done drugs i don't drink i don't smoke i have never gotten high so kind of outside of the target audience for this because this is very much a pot film whether you get into the aesthetics or anything how many times on the screen did they flash legalize it this is a pro pot movie oh very much you have the you know senator or that politician dude that's like creates this like toxic strain of pot to make other pot look bad that like make people go all he, yeah he has, he has a rant at the beginning it'll never be legal that I, I found that kind of amusing i mean i i didn't mind the overall story i thought as a sort of pot exploitation 70s film all the cards were there they were laid out just fine it was just the more more or less the execution and some of the writing that i had a problem with but story wise some of the aesthetic wise was very nice it was just to me like i'd say 70 to 70 to 80 percent of me not enjoying it was in the editing and there was also a lot of boobs in this movie a lot of boobs which you know in the 70s we had a lot of boobs you know yes. especially you know if if you look at some of the sleazier uh directors from that era you know the uh the russ myers and whatnot um you're gonna see a lot of tits which you definitely saw in this movie so they got that right but it's like uh, it was if if it would just edited a little more consistently, I think this really could have been a great cult film, and I think it could have stood right up with the likes of you know Devil's Rejects, which has very much become its own sort of cult uh, 70s exploitation, Texas Chainsaw Massacre exploitation kind of movie. I really wish this movie could have done the same for me. Well, I liked it, but again. My, my biases are out there. I really did enjoy this movie. So we're going to go to an interview I did earlier in the week with producer and writer Kevin C. Lockhart and editor Ben Lewandowski. And then Pete and I will be back.
How long has High on the Hog been in production? Because you've got a notably dead actor in this who's been dead a few years now. We at, Well, we started shooting it in 2012 in Galena, or out near Galena in a town called Elizabeth, Illinois. You know, prior to that, it, it had been a start and stop, actually, production uh, since about 2009. So the real shooting with Sid and Joe and Bobby and the rest of the gang started in 2012. We did some pickup. We, we did a first edit of the movie, completed in about 2014. It wasn't well received. Whole long story behind a lot of this stuff, but the writer, producer, owner of this movie, I'm fully responsible for everything that happened and I take full, full blame for it, for it, uh, not turning out the way that it should have. And then, so Ben kind of found me. We, he, he gave me some thoughts and ideas. We resurrected it because I had pulled it away when we didn't get any interest. And we shot some new scenes, and that was the Ellie scenes and the car scenes and some strip club stuff in 2016. And then Ben and I have been in post since then, pretty much. Well, now that the movie's been out for, I mean, it's only a relatively short period of time at this point, what kind of reception has it received because of, with the long gestation, has it received the reception either of you were hoping it would get? Well, I think that LA Times article says it all. <laughs> if you got it close, Ben, go ahead and read it. Yeah, let me let me bring it up. Let me bring it. This is a funny story because this this oh, premiered in the LA Times on on April nineteenth before the movie came out in, in 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 LA. I got the review, I read the review, and I called Kevin and I'm like, Man, did you see that LA Times review? And and Kevin goes, Yeah, I read it, I think it's great and I'm like what are you talking about? And he's like, well, you know, read it back to me. So this is literally what I did. I go, all right, hold on for a second. I hadn't really paid attention to the review. You know, just, I, I, I used to do this professionally. I, I see so many of these things. I read so many of the things. You just look for keywords and then you just kind of zip through it. But once I got to this paragraph, I was like, yeah, you're right. So <laughs> third, par- third paragraph down. By the way, this was written by the, Venerable Noel Murray, who's been a film critic with the LA Times since the 1850s. All right, so third <laughs> paragraph down. Besides Haig, High in the Hog features substantial roles for trash cinema vets Joe Estevez and Robert Zadar. And unlike the more timid modern genre films, this one's true to its sleazy roots. It's violent, it's laced with drug humor, and it's so committed to gratuitous nudity that even the closing credits include topless dancers. That is exactly, and Kevin said it before, he goes, that's exactly what And both men are right. That is a perfect review, because that is what we were going for. So to make a long story short, this movie's really critic-proof. It, 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 it's, it's impossible to give this movie a bad review. Just, it's impossible. That sounds like a challenge, because you know me, Ben, I hate everything. <laughs> it's true, but I also know that you don't pull shit out of your ass, and you are... Kevin, Josh here is basically an encyclopedia. He, uh, like yeah, he, he, he knows this, he knows this stuff. I mean, every genre, but especially, especially the genres that, uh, that we enjoy. Yeah, he knows this, he knows this stuff. We have a, we have some great conversations talking about trash cinema. You wouldn't believe some of the trailers I've sent to Ben and he can't believe are real movies. <laughs> that, that's how bad they are. They're so bad, I'm shocked. Well, and he's I never heard that. of them before. I'm like, no, dude, real movie. This was real. I'm like, well, you're lying. What was the last one? Showgirls 2. I'm like, that doesn't, that's not a thing that exists. And sure enough. And Jesus Christ was that atrocious. High on the Hog is obviously a pot film. 
don't think you're actually hiding that at all. What's the, <laughs> what, what kind of reception did it get from the pothead community? Because you have specific films that are made for potheads. And then you have films like this, which is very grindhousey, very 70s style. In fact, if there wasn't a mention of SIM cards and a cell phone at one point, you could almost have this have set in the 70s. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. But, but the, the cell phone makes it modern. But other than that, do you think that this will appeal to Grindhouse fans, or is it really more of a you gotta be a Cheech and Chong kind of guy? All of the above. I, I honestly, when Ben and I sat down to to redo and try to make this more Grindhousey, you know, when we got through with it, we looked at it because the the first time, let me back up for a second. The first time with the movie, when we did our first edit with this, the the comments that we got is, "Gee, we don't know where to." put this we wouldn't know how to market this you know because it's not drama it's not comedy it's not horror it's not grindhouse it's not this well at least with this one when we got done we looked at it we go okay this has kind of got a little thriller to it it's got a little horror some horror aspects to it it'll appeal to maybe some of those folks definitely got a pot theme. definitely got the grindhouse feel that, that we've been told if anything it's overkill and we call we prefer to call it you know the 21st century grindhouse you know, I I think it appeals to both, and I think that both people, both groups can get into it. But let me clarify, the one thought I think, though, that I have with this is I think it would appeal more to the potheads because you can watch this movie three times, four times, and you won't see the same thing. Well, because I noticed there's a big theme of legalize it. And, and you know, you're from Illinois, Ben and I are from Wisconsin, it is not legal in either of these states. No, I'm not a pothead, but is that basically the advocacy of this movie is let's make a grindhouse film that's basically about why don't you legalize pot? Yeah, I, I do think it was. I mean, it was, it was certainly a big motivation for me. And as I want to have, I want people to have access to it without getting arrested and busted for it. And, and the medical marijuana stuff in Illinois at least has happened. And now we've been told that come January, it will be legal in Illinois. But I have seen so many people, friends, family who have benefited from marijuana in, 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 in fighting cancer in fighting, you know, other mural-type diseases. And for me, that's why I really wanted to push it, and that's why I really like that aspect of this movie. I'm going to go into some spoilers here to ask you a couple of questions. I was actually kind of shocked you actually killed a character I didn't think you would kill. Halfway through the movie, I mean, there's still, what, I think 40 minutes left, and when they're slopping the pegs and the eyeballs in there, I went, did they actually kill her? <laughs> Yeah, well, you picked up on it, and you know, and there's a lot of people that don't pick up on it. But yeah, yeah, we, you know, but you know, you don't really tell it until near the end, right? I mean, it really doesn't come out until what the last twenty minutes, where you right, really but it's heavily it. implied before that. Now, the only thing I will give you crap on is the very end plot twist. I saw who the the backlit saboteur was. I saw that just, you know, minutes into the movie. I'm like, as soon as you introduce this one character, I went, he's the saboteur. You're good. You're also, again, I you're better than most. I mean, we had a reviewer who I won't mention who I don't even think ever picked up on. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it wasn't because he didn't watch it closely enough, but he, he just talked about it jumping around and it didn't make any sense. And I wasn't even sure who killed who and who was who was the saboteur in the whole process. Problem with a lot of films and a lot of people who watch films now 
is that they don't really watch them. Someone like you who has watched so many is going to catch that stuff. A lot of people don't catch it, guys. I mean, it's 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 crazy how many people go, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't, Oh, now I get it. But that's just the way it is. And that, that was a lot of the fact that we got with the first edit was, yeah, we can't really figure out who this is. And yeah, it's not really obvious is what's going on. And so we felt that we had to make it a little more obvious. Is that right, Ben? Is that kind of what you thought after seeing that first edit? Um, Josh brings up a really good point. Pay attention. See, this was this is the whole in-joke. This is a stoner movie. Most people aren't even going to realize what Josh got, which she actually says. You're talking about Jimmy being the, 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 you're talking about the mute, right? Yeah. Yeah, she actually says it. She actually says it on the porch. You pay attention to that, that scene. Most people won't get it. Because they're not really sure who Jimmy is, which is why we added uh, the scene in the beginning and the tattoos, which is why when you get to the end and you finally see the tattoo, it should come together. Once again, I think that that's going to zip past a lot of people. This is why you need to watch this movie several times, because there's... There's a lot of subplots going on, and they all do meet. A, they all do reach a resolution. You really got to be paying attention, like this is a standard thriller. The problem is, it's also a stoner move, so people are going to go in there partying, not expecting to have to pay attention because there is a lot of intel, especially in the first act, and no one's no one's picking up on it, which is great. Hopefully, they'll go back and watch two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten. I also noticed that one thing that really took me off guard was, you know, at first when we see Ellie, you know, cause she never technically interacts with the rest of the cast and the rest of the movie. You know, I, I really like the colors and I, I, get, I got a warrior sort of vibe off of her scenes. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but that's what it I was. saw it as. Yeah, but then all of a sudden when you made some of the wider shots, I'm like, why is she topless? I'm not complaining. I just am not sure why Ellie is topless in the recording booth or in the broadcast booth. Well, Josh, it's awful hot in there, you know, so sometimes you just have to do that. So, no, I, honestly, again, this was our, this was our gratuitous nudity, of course. But when we, uh, when we, after we had done that, the first edit, one of the, some of the feedback was, is if you're going to make it grindhousey, you got to have more nudity. We certainly did not have enough nudity in our first edit. And so when we went to shoot in 2016, you know, it was like, all right, Ben had the, Ben, Ben, of course, he loves when you mention Warriors, you know, the uh, Warriors, because that was his vision for it. I'm older, so I'm thinking Vanishing Point, only, you know, Cleavon Little with his shirt off wouldn't be appealing. So I said, yeah, we need to bring a woman in to be the Cleavon Little of the movie. I, I, you know, we said, okay, in addition to Ellie, we brought in Sierra Green, who, who did the motorcycle stuff. You know, we brought in the other two women who did the, the strip club stuff. And then we took video of all of them dancing in various stages of dress and undress just so that we could insert that into the movie. And honestly, that was literally the idea and the plan when we when we shot again in 2016. We needed more nudity. Well, now this would be a question for Ben specifically then. How radically different was the 2014 edit from the released edit, because in this, it's very grindhousey, a lot of, there's a lot of quick cuts, a lot of digital film damage, and all that kind of stuff. How different is that from the film you got initially? Um, the 2014 cut, substantially slower paced. That movie feels more like a police procedural. What's, what's ironic is the pacing of that version actually resembles the pacing of a true 1970s grindhouse film, which is very, 
very plotting, very deliberately paced, and very slow. The new version of it is obviously highly stylized. It's very chaotic, and we took everything to these degrees. Everything is over the top, from from the performances to the action to the dialogue to, to the pacing. I mean, we cut from an explosion to an explosion just so we can do it. I mean, that's why there's... That's why there, there's nudity that, that makes very little sense. It's just, like I said, it's a very over-the-top, self-indulgent movie. And I, I knew right away that after watching the 2014 version, we couldn't go, we couldn't half-ass that. We had to commit to a concept and go the whole way with it. Otherwise, we were going to find ourselves back where we were in 2014. Actually, I shouldn't say it like that. I didn't come onto the movie until 2015. I was, I was not involved until much later. Probably good for Kevin's sake, because if I would have been on set, who knows? It probably would have been, I probably would have made it worse. Was there any CGI in this or not? Because there were a couple of shots, I, there were a couple of the pans around to the farm. I don't mean this to sound mean, but they looked really fake to me. They looked like, like unfinished CGI. Were those all real or was there some CGI in that? No, they're all real. And we colored them, we colored them very, very specifically to make them look a, a little off. So what you're looking is that you're looking at the color timing. No, those are, those are drone shots. They're just colored in a very, very specific way to kind of age it up a little bit. So you're not really sure what the time period is. No, yeah, those are, those are, those were shot, uh, those were shot in the pickups, um, in, in, in 2016. Those were on location at a farm. Kevin, where were we when we shot those? Jeez, I don't know, it was one of the northwest suburbs. I, out by, I don't think it was Huntley, somewhere in that, out there, that direction. I don't even remember the town at this point. Well, so then, I, I guess my next question would be, you got a pretty good, pretty good grindhousey kind of cast here. Was there any difficulties working with Zadar, Joe, or Sid? Because Sid looks like he's having a ball. Well, actually, they all look like they're really enjoying themselves. I mean, you can tell Robert <laughs> Zadar is not in the best of health, but he still looks like he's enjoying himself. Everybody, I mean, I think everybody got along great. We had a very, at that point, I think a lot of our crew wasn't overly experienced. So, you know, Sid and Joe and Bobby all took some leadership responsibilities. And then when we had an issue on the set where we had to, and when we were shooting in 12 and we had the, you know, we had a bit of an issue on set where we had to replace, you know, and everybody had to take on some new production roles. We had to bring in a new actress. We had to bring in a, an assistant director to kind of help on set because Tony had taken on some new roles, some new production roles as well. It was, it was interesting how, you know, Sid stepped up and, and Sid actually asked to become a producer on this film. He wanted to take on a bigger role because I, I hope, I think, um, in some of my conversations with him in the past, even, I mean, I think he just, he really enjoyed it. He really liked the people that we were working with. And he, and so that's why he took on a bigger role. Joe and Bobby had worked together several times. So, you know, I don't, I think it was, Bobby was good friends with Joe, uh, Bob Farster, who lived out in, in uh, Elizabeth, whose farm we used for, for most of the location shooting. And then, Bobby and, and Joe were buddies from way back. So all of them, you know, knew each other and, and had worked together before. So people just had a great time. I, I mean, I know that we, I, I say that, but I say it a little tongue in cheek because we had a lot, a lot of challenges in getting this thing done. I mean, 
from day one with this thing. Before we even started shooting, we had problems. I mean, we burned down a barn that we were shooting in front of, that we were supposed to be shooting in front of three days later. <laughs> As I said, the movie comes together quite well. I, I would bitch it, Ben. It could lose another seven minutes. It doesn't need to be an hour 40, but that's just my personal feeling. But w- what problems did you run into while shooting the movie? We can start just at the beginning with the, with me not being there as much as I needed to be. Two week, a week before we were so supposed to start shooting, I moved out of my home that I'd been living with, with my, my, my ex-wife and I had been together for over 25 years. I moved out, moved into a buddy's house. Right before we were supposed to start shooting, my mom had a stroke. Right after we'd started shooting, my aunt, my favorite aunt from my childhood died. So I had a lot of personal things going on, which was stopping me from getting, being on set as much as I wanted to, to be able to do some of the things that I wanted to do and needed to do. Three or four days into shooting, we had a problem with one of our, with one of our folks ended up leaving the, the production, you know, so we had to replace that person. We had to reshoot the scenes that, that she'd already been in. We had to bring in some more crew, brought in the, the, the director, the assistant director. Ace to, to take over and do some stuff for us. We, like I said, we had burned down a barn leading up to it, threats of, of losing locations and different things that happened after we had kind of our problems on set. So, I mean, we had a lot of things that happened. We had to then extend our shoot time, you know, and then we get into the whole thing that from the time that we shot until we finally released the seven years and, and there's probably, you know, a half hour or an hour worth of stories involved there with, with everything that happened even, even then. So, but yeah, I mean, on set, I mean, there wasn't any, any issues with people one on one, no more than what you would have in any time when you got 40 or 50 people in the same location for three weeks. But, uh, you know, it was just, it just seemed like we were a little snake bit at times. Well, because Sid Haig, I interviewed him once. He was a super nice guy. I've never seen him in an interview where he comes across as angry or mean. He's always so down-to-earth, so kind. I'm going to guess that that's the way he was when the cameras weren't rolling, too. The best thing that I can say out of this, and and, and, and I will say this as, as, as often as anybody wants to hear it, is probably one of the best things that came out of this is the friendships that, that I've made through this process, Ben being one. Sid being another. I mean, I, I, I didn't really know Sid as an actor before I hired him on to this movie. You know, I really, I went back and looked at his stuff and when I found out he was in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman in the, in the seventies and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's that guy. I was like, holy crap. And then I went on and saw some of the other things and I was like, I knew he was in Star Trek. I knew he was in Batman. I knew he had done all these things. But then after I got to know Sid, I picked him up at the airport to bring him out to the, to the shooting. We stopped and we had, he ordered fried pickles and I go, Immediately, I'm like, oh, here's a man after my own heart. You know, he wants to eat fried pickles for his appetizer as we're on the way out to go to the shoot. Honest, loving, caring. You know, he's got that, that family, you know, you know, love and, you know, his, the feel of family. You know, and that's what this movie's about. When you talk about a guy who has, who's a strong man, who comes off as a strong guy, who is, but yet is the most warm-hearted and caring type of guy that you can imagine. And that's really kind of the character that I wanted him to be. And he is that man. That's that's kind of what he is in person, too. Sid Haig is, is one of those guys, I, I, I'll always remember this this story that, that he told was, 
Rob Zombie, the, the first time he met Rob Zombie, he was just like, oh my God, I'm meeting Rob Zombie. But Rob <laughs> Zombie was fanboying out over him going, it's Dragos from Jason of Star Command. <laughs> he always seems to be that kind of guy who doesn't understand why people love him so much. Like you brought up Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. You're a little older than me, my generation, and I don't know about Ben, but we knew him from Jason of Star Command. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he embraces all, that's why I think he does so well when he goes, when you see him at these cons and Ben and I have sat next to him at, at numerous of these, these horror cons and, and watch the fans that come up and it, and it could be little kids all the way up to, you know, 60, 70 year old people who just love the man. And, and, and you know what? He loves them back because he, he says it all the time. You know, he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. And he really truly loves his fan. I mean, Find somebody else who's still signing autographs for ten bucks a shot. I mean, there's just nobody out there that does that at these at these cons. He's he's the rarity, and he always has a line. I guess the question about Hog and him is, what did he think of the? I'm going to call it the Ben edit versus the original edit. Was he on board with all that? So the premiere, right, Ben? I mean, and he had we hadn't shown it to him. So oh no, it's the first time I had seen it. I asked him point blank when he came out of the theater. I don't sit through screenings, but I asked a couple of people that were sitting next to him, and they said he laughed. He laughed throughout it, but I asked him point blank, and Sid's real honest with me. I said, "What'd you think?" And he goes, "Little little smirk crossed his face, and he goes, I liked it.'" And then he left. <laughs> that was it. He was not that particular evening. He wasn't up to, to talking much, and I don't blame him at his age. I'm not up to talking much myself, and I'm. He's got thirty something years on me, so I can't. I certainly can't guarantee. I can't, I can't sit here and guarantee that which version he, but what he always told Kevin is that this was a movie about family and it needed to be more about family. And that's one of the focuses. That was one of my primary focuses when we, uh, when we recut the movie. There's a lot more of a family, family dynamic happening in this version. Besides, I'm not talking the critics here, you know, not like the LA Times review. What kind of feedback have you seen from renters or the VOD release or anything like that? Has it been generally positive? Because I'll be honest, I've read some reviews that liked it. I've read some reviews that didn't like it. I think it's been the same with the people that have watched it. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if, if you're a fan, if you're, if you're watching Hog to see Sid Haig in another horror movie, then you're probably going to be disappointed. If you're watching Hog because you like Sid as an actor and you like Joe Estevez and you like Bobby and you like Jesse C. Boyd or, you know, any number of the folks that we have in this film, then you're going to like it because it's, I, the, the people that I know and the people that don't, I mean, I'm not saying that, that I know personally, but the people that I know that I've talked to that have watched it and I've read some of the reviews, they go, hey, it is what you say it is. It's a grindhouse movie that's lots of energy and lots of fun, and you got to accept it and take it for what it is. The one thing that would hurt Ben and I the most is if you said you were bored. And we, we would be, that would be the thing that would kill us because we said the one thing we don't want anyone ever saying about our movie is that it was boring. No, I actually want, I, I'm encouraging people to see it. The, the thing that, that got me was, that got me interested in this was Ben showed me a trailer. It said X-rated trailer on YouTube, but you know, there's nothing X-rated in the movie. It was, and, and, and this is a thing that I have bitched about on my show many, many times. So the fact that your movie did it right was a positive thing was color. 
I can't stand all of these movies that look like goddamn Saw sequels, where all the colors leached out, everything's <laughs> bleached out. I, I, I believe the trailer opens with Ellie with the, the green light, which makes no sense, but it looks great on the background <laughs> and the way she's lit. The whole movie has, okay, this is going to be a weird thing to say. It has a washed out grindhouse look with bright popping colors, which those two yeah. things shouldn't go together, but they do. And that's, and that's exactly why those opening, those opening drone shots were probably odd because they, they with the, um, the depth of field potential. It's all over the movie. It's everything is exaggerated and over the top, even the color. And I gotta, I gotta shout, I gotta give a shout out to Steve Verdina who did all the, uh, the massive amount of color work on the 3,900 and whatever cuts it is. Cuts. I, yeah. Yeah, the color palette he used on that movie is exceptional. And you know what? Let me, let me, a big note of thanks to Rob Stern, who basically lit that Ellie set you were just talking about that morning. I sent him some stills a week or two prior using some examples from Bill Friedkin's To Live and Die in LA, the sequence inside of the, uh, the club, which is all decked out in neon. And he took that one shot I sent him, replicated it with paint, filled it that morning, bam, DJ booth, radio station. Do you know what I was actually thinking? I mean, obviously, you know, it was meant to be, like I said, the Warriors, but the, the radio station set, it reminded me of the completely not realistic at all, if you've ever worked in radio, set from Night of the Comet. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say Chainsaw too. Yeah, Night, Night of the Comet has one of the most unrealistic, quote, radio stations ever, totally. But it yeah, looks that's... great. It does. It looks fantastic, but it's it's not realistic at all. But yeah, the the, the neon pop. Chainsaw 2's DJ booth. I've worked in stations like that. That's relatively realistic. Tapes everywhere, old posters hanging on there, junk piled up, dust everywhere, old cups. That's what a freaking DJ's booth looks like. And you know what? Considering that was a canon film, that actually may have been shot on location as opposed to, as opposed to a um, building a set. They may yeah. They probably rented a radio station for the night. Yeah, they probably they probably did rather than just build that because. Because, once again, it's a canon film. Well, while Ellie's radio set is not <laughs> realistic at all, it looks great. That's all, Rob. My only my only contribution, I think, is in the planning stages. I was like, look, when I do a radio uh, bit where this uh, DJ explains part of the movie, and we're just going to see her mouth. That's why in every Ellie sequence, there is a sequence or a, a, a series of, of coverages that show just below her nose. But then we started to expand it because Ellie was so goddamn good. And see, that's another thing. That sequence you were talking about, the master shot, when we're floating around the room and you see her uh, naked, there is actually a substantial amount uh, of, of nudity that I eliminated because we went from hog to skeletons and I met Ellie, and I really, I, I thought she was a great actress, so I told her, I'm like, look, we have so much nudity now, I'll take some of that away, just give me one master shot. She's like, great, thank you, nice compromise. Because we had enough at that point. We had, when we had the, the nudity with Ellie idea, we didn't realize how much other, how much, how much more skin we were going to get. You, you, gonna... you don't, you don't want to go full warrior and the sorceress, where all of the <laughs> women walk around topless for no reason throughout the entire runtime of the film. <laughs> That might be the next the next one we do. Yeah. <laughs> and Warrior and the Sorceress even has the four titted dancer too. Yeah, it does. What do you guys want to do with Hog? Do you, do you do you have a sequel planned? I mean, it it's not really set up for a sequel, but I guess you could do something because it's not really resolved with the. I don't even know if you guys named him. I can't remember that the the evil guy getting the blowjob at the beginning. 
Right. He's, he's still out there with his tainting the weed because it'll never be legalized and all this. There's, I guess you could get a sequel out of that. Do you plan it or is this a one-off? There was a, the, the way that it ends, uh, we purposefully, one of the things that I, I pushed for when the gun goes off at the end, you don't actually see anything happen. You know, there's, there's, uh, you hear a gunshot, but you don't actually see what happens. So I think there's, there, this, there is a sequel and it is, I would say 90% written. Possible that that could be our next feature. I have two, three other scripts done or mostly done. One is a post-apocalyptic grindhouse type movie. So Ben and I, Ben and I are definitely going to do something again. We're not quite sure yet what it's going to be. We've been pretty fortunate that I have. I, I, I have some good business contacts and friends. I know some people that are pretty good about with money and, and looking to maybe invest and do some things uh, who'd like to be involved in another movie since we actually did a feature-length film and, and got some good quality uh, uh, stars in it and uh, and actually got all this thing done. We got some people that want to do another new work with us, so uh, we kind of already are, are, are looking at it and planning it. And Hog could be Hog 2. The, pig, the resurrection of the pig or something. Who knows what we'll call it. But yeah, you never know. So where where is Hog available right now? Is it just VOD or can you get it on Hulu and Amazon and all that? As of right now, it is on Amazon. It's on Hulu. It's not on Hulu. It's on Google Play. It's on PlayStation. It's on Voodoo. I'm trying to think what are some of the other ones, Ben? Do you remember? But I, yeah, that's mostly video on demand. It's on VOD right now. Uh, we're going to have a Blu-ray that will be out, we believe, by the end of this month, beginning of July. We'll probably start the pre-sale uh, later this month. You can it's find technically it on, on uh, DVD through the distributor, not that anybody gives a shit. If you can find where the distributor has it, I, I think I've been told it's out there. But we'll have the Blu-ray available, and everybody can go to highonthehogthemovie.com. And- oh, it's, uh, it's also at Family Video, believe it or not. Really? See, I didn't yeah. know that. It's not, it's that family video, yeah? Because so why the, not, right? Yeah, because, because why, why not? not? It makes, it makes perfect sense, totally. No, I, I, like I said, I, it's gonna, it, I'd like for people to check it out. Check, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, go to highonthehogthemovie.com, check it out. We'll have a lot of updates through there as to what's the next steps and, and what our next, what our next, uh, things are gonna be. Would you recommend people see this movie? Because just because you didn't like it. There are quite a few films, if you remember, Pete, where I said, I don't like this, but I can see other people liking it. Now, again, I'm on record. I enjoyed High on the Hog. You did not, and that's fine. Would you recommend people seeing this if for no other reason than seeing Robert Zadar in his final role? Oh, absolutely. Or Sid Haig? Okay, we have to admit it. Has Sid Haig ever been bad in something? Even garbage like House of the Dead 2. No, no Has he's Sid been ever great. been bad? He's always fantastic. And I absolutely would recommend this. Just even for the sake of just saying, you know, support independent cinema. Because even if I didn't like it, I could see people finding this amusing. I could see people that watch movies more for the ironic factor really enjoying this. I can see people that like this sort of editing and aesthetic enjoying this. I feel like I could have enjoyed it more if 
if it had a consistency tone wise, if, if it just went straight up sort of 2000s music video kind of thing, I, I might have enjoyed it more because there are movies like that that I do like. Like I really like Adam Chaplin for those reasons because it completely embraces those aesthetics. Whereas in this movie, it's like, oh, it's a 70s movie with all the scratches, but it's also got all these quick cuts like from a Marilyn Manson music video and it's just all over the place. To me, consistently, it might have been better, but I can see people enjoying it for certain reasons. Um, I can see people finding the sort of pro pot message to be amusing or funny into doing that sort of thing. Or you just think it's like a funny premise. I can see people enjoying it. I can see people that are fans of like the, the Grindhouse double feature movie, you know, the, the Death Proof Planet Terror. I can see people that are really into that sort of thing or into like a hobo with a shotgun or movies like that really liking this. I could definitely see people that enjoy that sort of thing enjoying it. So I would absolutely recommend it, even though I didn't like it because, again, support independent cinema. And just because someone else doesn't like something doesn't mean that, you know, you're not going to like it. Like people, there's a chance of there being a market for pretty much anything. So I absolutely recommend it. You bring up a good point about independent cinema. There's been a lot of independent movies. Now, I'm not talking, oh, those lower-budget movies that show up on Netflix, you know, that are Netflix originals or something. I mean, there is so much great, true independent cinema out there, and it should be supported. That doesn't always mean it's good. That's not a backhanded thing towards High on the Hog, but, like, just this week... Glenn Danzig's first movie, which is a true independent film, came out, and it's laughably bad. It's only played at one film festival so far, and it's unanimously, people were, Glenn Danzig even acknowledged this after the fact, you guys were laughing at parts that weren't meant to be funny. Okay, then. <laughs> so, he, I, I... At least he wasn't super arrogant about it. I was kind of expecting him to be like, you don't get it. At least I'm sure kinda... that's what it'll come out to be. But like his movie, Veronica, is literally being called the room of horror movies. So out of touch and so taking itself seriously that you can't help but enjoy just how deluded this movie is. To and from fair. everything I've seen of this movie, it is a singular vision. You can say that. It's independent cinema. And mm. personally, I do want to see it because I kind of got to know how bad it is because I know Glenn's writing. I'm not talking about his songs. His Danzig's, comic stuff. Yeah, his comic stuff are very simplistic. S somebody used this term to describe his Veronica work and it was perfect. They were almost like poems that you were supposed to think were deeper than they were <laughs> and that's almost what all of his comic writing is and that from what i understand is what this movie is is it's just dude you really think this is deep don't you Wow, all I know, I'm sorry. All I know is that he has a big resentment toward um a lot of the Marvel and DC stuff, so he set out to make a comic book line that was more sort of influenced on Japanese and European stuff that was sort of more uh graphic and visually he accomplished that. Yeah, it, it sounds story-wise like, not so much. It it sounds like a movie that is true to the comics he made, which are basically, you know, over the top gothy uncompromising sleaze so i okay i i I have, since we have not seen it yet, we only have the critics from this one screening. The general consensus I've gotten about Veronica is 
the 90s 14-year-old boy inside you will love this movie. (laughs) That's what I figure. Whereas on the other hand, to contrast that with High on the Hog, I think whether you're a pothead or not, you can find something in this movie to like. Like you, you didn't like the movie. You still liked aspects of the movie. Absolutely. Whereas Veronica, it sounds like you can only like it on an ironic level because... (laughs) place was packed not one critic came out of this saying there's a good film somewhere in here they all said oh my god i'm looking forward to seeing it like i'll i'll support pretty much uh anything danzig wants to do i i feel like he's one of the last remaining true independent artists because he doesn't compromise he makes whatever he wants to make if you don't like it you don't like it if you like it you like it i i very much respect him for that i love his music um i obviously think his his comics at least from you know when i was um uh, in my young you were teens, a 90s 14 year i was old. a 90s 14 year old yes um or i guess in my case it's more uh early 2000s 14 year old but i i thought that i thought that stuff was cool and i'm kind of i'm looking forward to at least watching it for like nostalgic sake and i'm pretty sure i mean because he's directed some of his music videos and they look pretty awesome i mean i'm expecting the movie to at least look good uh then then you're gonna be disappointed oh no it's supposedly shockingly amateurish they said there there's like a rack focus that goes too far and comes back (laughs) there he has he has problems with framing at one point there's a whole segment that takes place in the 1890s in paris and you can see los angeles landmarks in the background and no this seems like like glenn just didn't know how to make a movie but but how the gods kill was such a cool looking music video yeah, and it also focused up. on him on camera almost exclusively. But he looked good. The colors were cool. Glenn Danzig have, has an ego? No way! No way, dude! <laughs> Not Glenn Danzig! So, support independent cinema. I hope after listening to the interview with Kevin and Ben, you guys got a little more insight into the movie, which you should go and absolutely rent right now. You should go out and rent it. Whether you enjoy it or not, you should rent it and let us know what you thought of it. Okay, Peter wasn't the biggest fan. I really had a good time with the movie, and that actually kind of shocked me because, you know, pot movies aren't my thing. So I was actually kind of shocked. Again, maybe it was because Ben had given me the screener, and I don't know. I liked it. Maybe you just, it could be that you hadn't had more time to warm up to it. Maybe, maybe I'll warm up to it at some point. I just know that at this point in time, after seeing it for the first time last night, I was not the biggest fan. But like I, like I said earlier, there's, there's things that I liked about it and I still absolutely endorse it. And I believe people should go out and check it out. Um, support local cinema. Go check this out. Go, go pick up or rent or stream, you know, Scott Atkins latest movie, Vengement. It's really great and independent action film and he does a great job in it. Uh, the directing in it is great. It's, it's better than a lot of action movies you'll see in theaters. The independent scene is, is so much harder to get a hold of nowadays, too, because we don't really have video stores anymore. Either If, if something doesn't end up on Netflix or on demand, it's going to be incredibly hard to see it unless you find it in a bargain bin somewhere. So please try to watch as many independent films as you can, because as we all know, everybody that listens to the show knows that 
The day of the video store is long gone, and it is a lot harder to find new independent films. It's easy to find a lot of the older ones because a lot of people are talking about them. A lot of people are sharing their opinions about them, making videos on them and whatnot. But as far as the more recent ones go, it's it's a lot harder to find. So support the support the independent cinema, whether it's good or bad. Support these filmmakers and make make it a bit easier for people to find movies like this because we, we can't just live off Netflix and the movie theaters. Down with Disney. Down with Universal. Yes, agreed. Go and find High on the Hog, check it out, and let us know what you thought. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com or go to the website 1201beyond.com. That's to contact me. To contact Peter, you can find me on the Twitters at Zinematica, on Facebook, The Cinemasticist, YouTube, The Cinemasticist, on 1201beyond.com with other fine programming, and on Patreon at Zinematica. Support the show at Patreon, the 1201 Beyond or Radio Drum Patreon. So try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.